Again, we're thankful for all those who have served. We're thankful for this great country that we get to live in every single day. We're going to take another summer short on today, and because we're celebrating the 4th of July this Wednesday, and we're celebrating our nation's independence, we're going to go with that theme. God bless America. You know, He really has, hasn't He? He really has. And there's a reason for why God has blessed America. It was first declared in the Old Testament, in the book of Psalms, chapter 33, 12, when the Bible declares, blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord, the people he chose for his inheritance. Now, in its biblical context, the verse is speaking specifically of the nation of Israel, God's original chosen people. His blessing was upon them, and his inheritance is upon them. But since Christ came, that door has opened for more than just the people of God, the nation of Israel. Now, that inheritance is for every man, every woman who has trusted Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of their sins. And not only will God's blessing fall upon those who have humbled themselves before the cross, God's blessing will also fall on nations who continue to embrace the cause and the kingdom of Jesus Christ. On the other hand, 1 Samuel 2.30 says, Those who honor me, I will honor. But those who despise me will be disdained. What's that verse say? This is obviously those who honor me, I will honor. But he says, those who despise me will be disdained. What does that word mean? The word disdain means to be set aside as inferior. To no longer hold a prominent position. So God says, those who honor me, I'm going to honor. But those who reject me, those who despise me, those who are ashamed of me, those who no longer want my presence, those I'm going to set aside as inferior. Those I'm going to set aside as not useful any longer. You know, if we would look at the history of the world and all the nations, we see how these verses have played out dramatically. Those nations who have embraced God have had God's blessings, and those nations who have despised God have felt God's wrath over time. We've seen this most recently on the continent of Europe. You know, the continent of Europe, not too long ago, was the bastion of the Christian faith. It was the area and the region of the world that was spreading the gospel around the world through missionary activities. It was the birthplace of many of the great theologians that our pastors study in seminaries and Bible colleges today. It was ground zero for Christianity. And it's no longer ground zero. Colin Hansen, a Scandinavian pastor, said this, we're not going to stop any presses by declaring that Christianity has suffered serious decline in Europe. But he goes on to say, the place where apostles preached and where Aquinas, Calvin, Luther, Barth, and countless other spiritual luminaries called home. In other words, he again verifies that Europe was once the center of the Christian movement on planet Earth. It was living for Christ and God's blessing was upon it. But that's no longer true today. I don't often quote the Pope because of our significant doctrinal theological differences, but recently he said something that that really should echo through the minds of Europeans. 
The Brussels Journal reports that Pope Benedict spoke at the Collège des Bernardins in Paris, delivering a discourse that was unanimously praised for its high intellectual level. And here's what the Pope said about the Christian roots of Europe, as quoted in La Salon Beige. He said, the roots of France, like those of Europe, are Christian. Now look what he says. Nations must never allow what constitutes their own identity to disappear, and they must take pains to preserve and develop their own culture without ever allowing it to be absorbed by others. Finally, he says, making evident the Christian roots of France will allow all the inhabitants of this country to better understand where they come from and where they are going. He could say the same of the United States of America. In other words, he's, he's reminding the Europeans, specifically now in France, that their history, their identity is rooted in Christianity. Where they come from in 1900, almost everyone on the continent of Europe was Christian. But today, in 12 major European countries, 38% of people say they are, that they never or practically never attend church. Furthermore, the separation between church and state in Europe has become profound. Does that sound familiar? European leaders rejected any mention of the role of Christianity in a new constitution for the 25 European Union countries. France's 60% non-attendance rate is the highest in that group. Where once the fire of Christianity burned brightly and illuminated the rest of the world, now on the continent of Europe, there's barely a speck of light left. We have here today in our service two people who know that very well because they've been on that that battlefront for many years now. And they have been trying to re-illuminate that spark. They've been trying to reignite that spark and remind Europeans, especially Frenchmen, of the fact that their history is rooted in Christ. They're friends of Florida Bible. They're our own missionaries. And I want you to, in, to welcome today Greg and Judy Sermons. Would you welcome them as they come? Greg and Judy and their relationship with Florida Bible go back many, many, many years, far before my tenure. And they've been in France, and they've been trying to reignite that spark for many years. Greg, what we've been talking about, is that reality? Uh, it's underestimated. I would estimate that it's more like 95% of the French people never attend any church of any, any sort. Surprise me, there's 5% of the population that actually practice any kind of Christian faith. Judy, in your experience there, how has all this played out in, in, in your efforts to try to win people to Christ? Um, I see God do some exciting things. But uh, I remember um, when we were in the southwest of France where Greg pastored a church for about 20 years, there was a Christian family in our church and um, they were <clears throat> making friends with their neighbors, and I'm sure it was with the desire to share Christ with their neighbors. And um, they got to talking together, and they thought, uh, how about if we go back riding together someday? And uh, they thought, yeah, that would be great. 
And uh, they thought, well, now wh when could we do that? And the neighbors said, well, um, how about Sunday morning? And our Christian friends said, uh, well, maybe not Sunday morning because we go to church. And the neighbors looked at him and said, what? You mean that still exists? Can't imagine that. I mean, th thinking that it had long ceased to exist even. What a tragic, tragic, tragic epithet. Greg, what happened? Well, basically, at the time of the Reform, one-third of the French population were Protestant, and they were persecuted. Many of them died for their faith. They were burned to the stake or other terrible ways of dying, generally with torture and suffering. Many of them fled the country, going to Switzerland, or some of them came to what was then the American colonies that became the United States. And there were those that compromised and reconverted the Catholic faith and saved their skin, to save their lives. Basically, several generations later, some of the descendants of those Protestants that had compromised to save their lives became those humanistic philosophers that brought about the French Revolution. And uh, France has become a humanistic country. In 1968, there were major... A student, a major student uprising. The theme was, it is forbidden to forbid. Forbidden to forbid. And that was the end of what was left of any Christian or Catholic, in, as it is a Catholic country in the majority, uh, what was left of that Catholic or Christian uh, morality. And this is, this is where we are today. A country that has turned its back on, on Jesus Christ. That was the seed of postmodernism that it's forbidden to forbid because we believe today or their culture says today that there is no absolute truth and therefore the Bible is not absolute. God's word is not absolute. What the churches and the preachers preach is not absolute. And so they've abandoned any confidence in that whatsoever. Totally. Everything's rel relative. Everyone is their own authority. Yes, when, when we witness to share Christ uh, with, uh, with people, um, they say, yeah, that's fine for you. Uh, um, what I think is this and that and the other, and it's like it doesn't even hold any water. Well, as you prepare to go back to that dark place, what can we as a church pray for for you? Okay, as I said, um, I would covet that you pray for Greg and I that we may be filled with God's Spirit. Um, it's not that we never are, but it's not 100%. And yet when we are really close to the Lord, we see things happen, extraordinary things sometimes. I'd love to share them with you sometime. And, you know, someone might be, might be tempted to say, well, why aren't you always filled with the Spirit? But when I think about the place that you're trying to do ministry in, I can't imagine the discouragement. I can't imagine the level of frustration in that dark of a place where there is absolutely no welcoming of what you want to share. France is known as the graveyard of missionaries. I can certainly understand that. What else can we pray for you about? I'd like to ask you to pray for, uh, the, for us, the Lord, to open doors. Uh, recently, uh, some neighbors down the street, some Muslim family, invited us to come to their home and, and have dinner. And what an opportunity to share the gospel with them. Pray the Lord opens that kind of doors, that we're able to have that personal contact. Because many times people they just aren't interested. And uh, pray for the God, God to do that for us, please. Well, we want you guys to know how much we love you and how much we respect you. 
you have not allowed France to be your graveyard. No. And you're still there, and you're still on the front lines, and you're still fighting the battle. You're trying to reignite that spark. And, and we will pray for you, that God will, will be strong in you. And we already see the Holy Spirit in you. But we pray that he'll be stronger and stronger and stronger in you. And we pray that God will open opportunities for you. Know that you're loved, and we will pray for you. And we want to thank Florida Bible Church, like I shared earlier. Um, in 1977, I graduated Florida Bible College, and in uh, February 1978, I went to, came to the missionary conference at Florida Bible Church, and it was the missionary support of Florida Bible Church to put me over that top, and I left a month later and arrived in France, March, March 1978. Uh, so thank you very much. We do appreciate it. If you'd like to have our prayer request, we do have a blog. It's at sermons.info, and uh, get our prayer request, or become one of our Facebook friends as we share prayer requests there. Thank you very much. And you have some prayer cards that you can share with us. Yes, we us. have yeah. prayer cards. We'll ask church, us for one afterwards. Let's thank them for their service, church. Thank you. Thank you. Europe, the birthplace of so many of our great theologians, and, and you hear where it's at today. Now listen, if we don't think that can't happen in the United States of America, we better wake up. We have always declared ourselves to be one nation under God. From the time we enter kindergarten, we're taught the pledge of allegiance to our flag. I pledge allegiance to the flag of the United States of America and to the republic for which it stands. One nation, what church? Under God. Under God. Now, I want you to know that that statement and that declaration is not an isolated declaration in some kind of poetic oath that we recite on special occasions. We need to constantly be reminded, our children need to be reminded, and our grandchildren need to be reminded that that declaration is interwoven into the fabric of this nation's foundation. In fact, it is evident in every one of the, of the state constitutions or charters. Alabama became a state in 1901. We, the people of the state of Alabama, invoking the favor and guidance of Almighty God, do ordain and establish the following constitution. Alaska, one of the most recent states, admitted in 1956, we, the people of Alaska, grateful to God and to those who founded our nation and pioneered this great land. Arkansas, 1874, we, the people of the state of Arkansas, grateful to Almighty God for the privilege of choosing our own form of government. California, 1879, we, the people of the state of California, grateful to Almighty God for our freedom. Colorado, 1876, we, the people of Colorado, with profound reverence for the supreme ruler of the universe. Delaware, one of the first states, 1787, through divine goodness all men have by nature the rights of worshiping and serving their creator according to the dictate of their consciences. Florida, our own state, 1885. We, the people of the state of Florida, grateful to Almighty God for our constitutional liberty, establish this constitution. We could go through every state and you would see the exact same declaration. Why? Because from its inception throughout its history, even as states have been added, we've returned to the foundational fact and truth that this nation was established to be one nation under God. But will it remain 
one nation under God? Or will it go the way of Europe? Well, sadly, there are signs that Christianity and the cause of Jesus Christ continues to flounder in this one nation under God. Belief in God is down. At the end of World War II, 98% of Americans were absolutely sure that God exists. And recent surveys and polls, that has gone down to 73%. Self-reported Christians, those who actually claim Christianity as their faith, 1948 was 92% of the population, 78% today and falling. Church attendance, as recent as 1972 in the census, the majority of Americans reported that they attended church once a month or more. But in the 2010 census, they reported that they might attend church several times a year or less. One nation under God, it's in jeopardy. But listen, we can save America. We can save America. And when I say we, I'm talking about the body of Christ. I'm talking about Florida Bible Church and other churches who believe that the Bible is the divinely inspired word of God and the guidebook for life and the guidebook for nations. See, the formula was given to God's original chosen people the nation of Israel in 2 Chronicles 7.14, where God declared, if my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then will I hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and heal their land. Notice who he addresses it to. He says, if my people who are called by my name. That's where it starts and that's where it ends. And I remind you again, and, and it's so important for us to remember and to remind the generations that follow us that that is who this nation was founded as and who it was founded by. Patrick Henry, our great founding father, said, it cannot be emphasized too strongly or too often that this great nation was founded not by religionists, not just by people who believed in God, but by Christians, not on religion, but on the gospel of Jesus Christ. He goes on to say, for this reason, people of other faiths have been afforded asylum, prosperity, and freedom here. Alexander Hamilton talking about the the committee that, that formed the Constitution of the United States. He said, I now offer you the outline of the plan they have suggested. Let an association be formed to be denominated the Christian Constitutional Society. Its object to be first the support of the Christian religion, second, the support of the United States. Has that flipped or what? Today, it's declared the Constitution demands the separation of church and state. But our founders determined that the Constitution was first and foremost to protect Christianity and then to support the security of the country. If my people who are called by my name. Do you know that in the history of the United States, Christian people have already turned the hearts of the nation back to God at least three and some claim four times. Even before we became a nation, the hearts of people towards God in the colonies began to grow cold. And so there was a great awakening 
in the 1720s through the 1740s and great preachers like Jonathan Edwards and George Whitfield came and they preached and people's hearts, believers' hearts were turned back to God and there was a great awakening in the colony and the country returned their direction to God and that's what paved the way for the founding of this great country as one nation under God. Later, the hearts of people began to grow cold again. And, and there was a second great awakening between 1800 and 1840. And this was a great evangelistic revival in America where people by the thousands came to faith in Jesus Christ. And once again, the heart and the mind and the soul of the country was turned back to its religious foundation of Jesus Christ. Later, again, the country began to, to move away. And there was a third great awakening between 1850 and 1910. This was the great Sunday school movement of, of, of Dwight L. Moody. And this was the great evangelistic crusades of Billy Sunday. And literally they would come in and entire towns, bars would shut down and people would trust Christ and the whole town would come out to these revivals and cities after city was changed and the hearts of the American people turned back to God and God's blessing turned back to the country. There, those would argue a fourth great awakening from 1969 and 1970 when people once again began to come back to church and they began to embrace the word of God as the divine word of God. And God's blessing once again came upon the country. See, if my people who are called by my name we're the ones who can make the difference. Not the Republican Party, not the Democratic Party, not the Independents, not the Libertarians. If this country will continue in its greatness and have God's blessing upon it, we have to pave the way. My people who are called my name will humble themselves. First Peter 3.15 says, But in your hearts set apart Christ as Lord. See, the problem is, and why the country begins to lose its, its consciousness and lose its direction as the people of God start compartmentalizing God. And he's a part of our life, but he's not the focal point of our life. But scripture declares that we are to set him apart. That means there is to be nothing else like him. And he's not a checkbox, but he is the center of every compartment of our life. In our last series that we called Radical. Pastor John delivered a great message on our radical commitment. And our radical commitment is this. I am second. God is first. I am second at work. God is first. I am second in my family. God is first. I am second in my marriage. God is first. I am second as a parent. God is first. I am second in my finances. God is first. I am second. The cause of Jesus Christ is first. Can you imagine what would happen in this country? Because we still, the silent majority as it used to be called, are believers in God. If we would embrace this challenge and this radical commitment to be second, how this country would begin to turn around and turn its heart back to God? If my people, who are called by my name, will humble themselves, and it goes on to say, and if we'll pray, James 5.16 says the prayer of a righteous man is powerful and effective. And we know that because we've seen that play out as we pray for things in our life and as we pray for, for challenges in other people's lives. And we see that played out. And yet, how often do we really pray for our country? You know, the Bible commands us to pray for our leaders. 
for those that are in authority over us. How often do we do that? Believing that those prayers are going to be effective because we have seen throughout history that God has changed the hearts of kings and leaders and led them in new directions because prayer is powerful and effective. We are, be, we are challenged to pray continuously, Colossians 4.2. Devote yourself to prayer, the Bible says. 1 Thessalonians 5.16 and 18. Be joyful always. Pray continually. Give thanks in all circumstances, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. 2 Timothy 1.7 says we're to pray combatively. For God did not give us a spirit of timidity, but a spirit of power, of love, and self-discipline. You know, when we do pray, and we do pray for our leaders, and we do pray for our country, we need to offer powerful, combative prayers. We don't need to offer these, these weak, anemic prayers, or I hope this happens, or God, maybe you'll think about this. We need to pray, and pray, God, you take care of that leader who's not leading us in the right direction. You either change his heart, or, or get him out of office. You pray for that woman who's leading us in the wrong direction. God, I pray for our country. I pray for our Congress. I pray for our senators. I pray for our president. I pray, God, that you you will move their hearts and you will guide their thoughts in the direction of this nation. We need to pray powerfully and forcefully and with faith that God will hear our prayers. My people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways. We need to be careful that we don't go the way of the world rather than lead the world in the way of the cross. Matthew 5.16, Jesus said, In the same way, let your light shine before men, that they may see your good deeds and praise your Father in heaven. What Jesus is saying, listen, you're living in a world of darkness. And it's going to happen over and over again. It's going to happen in the lives of individuals. It's going to happen in the history of nations that they're going to lose their godly consciousness. And there's going to be a darkness, a spiritual darkness that settles over the land. Jesus saying here, you believer, you man of God, you woman of God, your life needs to be a light that illuminates the road back to the cross for individuals and for nations. 2 Corinthians 6, 17, Paul says, Therefore come out from them and be separate, says the Lord. Touch no unclean thing, and I will receive you. There needs to be a difference between us as believers and the world. We had a series here a while back that we called Collide. And we saw in that series, dramatically, how in the lives of believers more and more we are being absorbed into the postmodern culture rather than resisting it and coming out separate from it. And it's had devastating effects in our marriages, in our parenting, in our reputations on the job, in our effectiveness for spreading the gospel of Jesus Christ. If my people, who are called by my name, will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways... Now, I'm going to meddle here for a little bit. One of the places we need to really turn from our wicked ways is at the election polls. So often, we follow the the campaign slogans of those running for office. I mean, think about, you know, every presidential campaign that we've had, and and, and the senatorial and the congressional and all that, they all promise that they're going to make a difference in America. Ronald Reagan said, morning again in America. Yeah, it's going to be morning. He's going to change it. 
Then there was, you know, Bill Clinton, it's time to change America. And then we got excited about George Herbert Walker Bush and read my lips, no new taxes, I'm going to vote for him, I don't want to spend any more taxes. And then President Obama, yes we can. Yeah, it doesn't matter what party, it's going to be the same message. It's going to be the same offer of hope. It's going to be the same offer of change. And all too often, we have followed our wallets, we have followed some social agenda when we as believers are not Republicans, we're not Democrats, we're not Independents, we're not Libertarians, we are theocrats and we need to vote biblically. We need to research and we need to know not only what the campaign slogans are and what the shallow political promises are, we need to find men and women who will stand for the cause of Jesus Christ and get them in office. And then maybe America will start turning back to where she needs to go. Romans 13.1 says, everyone must submit himself to the governing authorities. Listen. We as the church, we as Christian people, we're complaining all about the time, all the time about what they're doing in Washington and what they're doing in Tallahassee and, and other places. The fact of the matter is we're the ones that put, put the people in office who are making the laws and who continually absorb postmodernism into the consciousness of the United States instead of going the way of God. And then we sit back and complain about them. We need to repent of voting for things that we think are going to benefit us personally. And as the body of Christ, we need to pray biblically. Americans have been given the opportunity to choose our leaders. We need to claim our opportunity and elect biblically sound leaders. Not what they say, but the way they've lived their life. The way they voted on other issues. The way that they embrace or reject the values that God's word teaches us to embrace as a nation. Pray first. Then vote. What a concept. Before going into that election booth and choosing anything, how about praying about it? How about actually knowing what we're going to vote for before we go in? See, we need to be the leaders of America. We can turn the heart of America back to our foundation. And we can do it one vote at a time. One prayer at a time. One repentance at a time. We can save America. We will turn from our wicked ways. Look what he says. Then, when my people who are called by my name humble themselves and put themselves second, when they pray continuously and combatively, when they seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then, God says, I will hear from heaven and I will forgive their sin and I will heal their land. Listen, we better remember 1 Samuel 2.30. Those who honor me, I will honor. And mark this down. The United States of America has been blessed and has enjoyed its greatness because of our being one nation under God and you look at current history, and you look at current times, and the further we get away from Jesus Christ, the more peril and the more trouble our country has. Why? Because God says, 
Those who honor me, I will honor. Those who despise me, those who don't want me in the schools, those who don't want me in the, in the political places, those who don't want me in the community centers, those who don't want me in society, those who don't want me in culture. After a while, he said, I will disdain. What? I'm going to push them aside as inferior. I'm going to push them aside as no longer useful. It's happened in Europe, and don't think it can't happen here in the United States of America. But listen, we can save America. Let's bow our heads. God, it's time as we celebrate our independence, as we've recognized the dedication and service of the men and women who have served in our armed forces to to continue to secure our freedom and our independence. It's time for us to acknowledge that the most important part of our independence is our reliance on you and is our return to living out your word. God, I pray for America today. Lord, even more so, I pray for the church. And I don't mean the buildings. I don't mean the denominational titles. I mean the people. That, God, we might be a light again. And that we might stand up and take our place as great men and women of faith have before us. And that we might initiate another great awakening in this country while we still have a chance. Thank you, God, for what you've given us. God, help us to be a part of preserving it for the generations to come. But Father, does us no good to live in one nation under God if our life isn't under you? God, there may be a man, there may be a woman here today who has never trusted Jesus Christ as their eternal Savior. God, they don't need just a Christian nation. They need a personal relationship with you. For your word says in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8 and 9, For by grace are you saved through faith, that it's not of yourself, it's the gift of God, not by works, so that anyone can boast. God, there's no way we could ever work our way to heaven. The only way to heaven is through the sacrifice of Jesus. Jesus died on a cross. Jesus paid it all. All to him I owe. Sin had left a crimson stain, but he washed me white as snow. God, I pray for any man or any woman who has never trusted Christ as their Savior, who has never received your eternal gift of forgiveness, that they might receive it right now. Praying, God, I confess my sin to you. I confess that I'm not good enough to get to heaven, and I'll never be good enough to get to heaven. So, God, I'm going to stop relying on my own goodness and my own self-discipline, and today I surrender my soul to Jesus Christ. I believe, God, that he's your son, that he died on the cross and rose again. And I believe that because he was the only worthy sacrifice for sin and the only willing sacrifice for sin, that, God, you have given him alone the authority to forgive sin. So, Jesus, today, I ask you to forgive my sin. Jesus, today, I believe on your name and your name alone for eternal life. Today, Jesus, be my Savior. The Bible says to anyone who humbles himself in this way, Yet to all who received him, to those who believed on his name, John 1.12, I gave the right to be children of God. Father, bless America. God, use us. Bring us back to you. In the name of Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen.